0: Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode.
1: Everyone and Welcome to this joint Digital Euro Association and Digital Pound Foundation webinar. We're really delighted to be here and we're really grateful to the Digital Euro Association association and their partners for their initiative in organizing this event and for partnering on it with us. I'm Helen Disney. I'm a director at the Realization Group and I support the foundation with their communications and events. But I've also got a personal interest in digital currencies. With my background in public policy, I'm particularly interested in how governments around the world are adopting blockchain and digital currencies in the public sector. I'm also interested in the sharing of best practices between different jurisdictions. Today we're going to be looking at the important questions of fungibility and interoperability in the digital money ecosystem with a fantastic panel of speakers who are all extremely expert in this field. So we're really grateful as well to Ripple, to Quant, and to Clifford Chance for joining us and providing their knowledge and insights. I'm shortly going to pass the hosting over to Jana Pache, who's my colleague in the Digital Pound Foundation, policy lead there, and one of the originating members of the foundation. And she'll be able to give each of the panel a bit more of a chance to introduce themselves. But just before doing that, I just wanted to outline some of the topics that we're planning to cover today. So we're going to be looking at the important question of what is fungibility. I think in our pre-panel discussion, we were just kind of touching on this and how it's a very complex area, um, and in particular, why it matters when we come to considering the relationship between public and private forms of money, i.e. central bank digital currencies and stable coins. Then we're going to look at the fungibility considerations there are for a digital euro or a digital pound. We're going to touch on how different jurisdictions, legal and regulatory frameworks can support fungibility between CBDCs and stablecoins. We're going to look at the difference between fungibility and interoperability uh, and also another concept, I think, of uh, convertibility. And then we're going to look at how interoperability can support fungibility to create a healthy and diverse ecosystem for new forms of digital money just to let you know during the webinar those listening in live will have the opportunity to ask questions to the speakers via slido you should see a link to this um, in the youtube chat so please have a think and put forward any questions you might have so that we can incorporate these into the discussion you can also upvote someone else's question so if you see another question that you particularly like that someone's already asked feel free to upvote that and also if you're putting in your own question you can direct that question to a particular person if it's for someone in particular from the panel So without further ado, I'm going to now hand over to Jana Apache, who's going to moderate today's session. And I look forward very much to hearing all of the discussion myself um, and to hopefully hearing questions from all of you who are joining us from around the world.
2: Thank you very much, Helen. And thank you to our colleagues at the Digital Euro Association for co-hosting this this first event in our um, partnership series with us today. Um, So uh, as you can see, my name is Janet Pache. I am um, the policy lead and an originating member of the Digital Pound Foundation, which was established and launched in October 2021 um, with the aim of promoting the development of a well-designed digital pound. In the UK, be that uh, public or private form, um, and also um, the development of a diverse um, and effective ecosystem for new forms of digital money more generally in the UK. Um, on a personal level, my background is in consulting and financial services, and I'm also the director of Markets Evolution, which is a consultancy specialising in regulatory strategy and financial innovation. Um, I come from a capital markets background, um, and unlike a lot of people in the space who are more from a, uh, coming from uh, the payments perspective. And um, I think digital currencies um, and um, new forms of digital money in general are really interesting because they're, first of all, they're they're a, a fundamental bedrock underpinning the development of a digital economy and our transition to a digital economy, but also because they, in, in the act of their coming into existence, they're causing us to ask some very interesting questions about the nature of money and how the world of money operates today, which we'll dive into in a bit more depth. I'm going to go around the panel um, I'll go um, clockwise across my screen and um, ask for their introduction. So Jonas, can you go first, please?
3: Yes, thank you very much, Jenna. And also thanks on my side um, to the whole Digital Pound Foundation team for having this cooperation, also this joint event. It's really my pleasure. My name is Jonas Gross. I'm currently chairman of the Digital Euro Association. And besides um, the Digital Pound Foundation, I also want to thank our members, the Ripple, RTGS Global, Bundesdruckerei, C Labs, Fluency, Hamburg Commercial Bank Circle, and Frankfurt School Blockchain Center to name all for the great um, support. I'm um, also in our association. And besides my role as the chairman of the DIA, I'm currently head of digital assets and currencies at Etonic, a Berlin-based B2B companies around um, crypto and traditional finance. And I do have a PhD in economics, Um, yeah, and actually wrote my PhD thesis on CBDCs. So, yeah, I hope I can contribute a little to this great debate here, and I'm really, really looking forward to this uh, great panel.
2: So, yes, with a PhD in CBDC, Jonas does know a thing or two about digital currencies. Martin, could you introduce yourself, please?
0: Absolutely, thank you. I'm Martin Hargreaves, I'm Chief Product Officer at Quant, um, we're a member of the Digital Pound Foundation. Uh, my background is indeed in payments, um, So having spent 12 years at Vocalink and MasterCard before coming over here to, to Quant a couple of years ago. Um, and we are strongly interested in stablecoin, digital money, and CBDC. Uh, so happy to be here.
2: Thank you, Martin. Diego. Thanks, Jana. <clears throat> my name is Diego
4: Balionosio. I am a senior associate at Clifford Chance. Clifford Chance, a global law firm, we've got offices in in Europe, um, Asia, the US, and we're headquartered in the UK. Um, and I've spent my start of the start of my career at the UK Financial Conduct Authority, where I was a lawyer. And then i moved to private practice about eight years ago and i've been focusing on digital assets and crypto and CBDCs generally um as part of my practice and so i've been thinking about the development of cbdc's and from a legal perspective quite a bit looking forward to the panel
2: thank you diego and last but not least usman
5: hello um my name is usman Mandeng. thank you very much um, for, for the invitation I have been working with Accenture for almost four years, where I co-lead its CBDC campaign globally. Um, I have been involved in a number of CBDC projects, including Project COCA2, Jura, ECRONA. Prior to that, I worked more than 20 years, both in finance and at the International Monetary Fund. Um, I've been studying the international financial system for many years, and I'm a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. I very much look forward to the discussion.
2: Thank you. Um, So as we alluded at at the beginning, I think this is a a topic um, which, despite sounding quite dry on on, on the surface, um, really gives us an opportunity to explore the nature of money and what the introduction of these new forms of digital money can mean for the financial ecosystem. And I'll I'll start before I pose the first question to the panel just by giving you all a bit of background on how our various discussions across um, the Digital Pound Foundation and with the involvement of some of our colleagues at the Digital Euro Association as well have led to this point and um, to our development of of this, this particular webinar. Um so when we when we transact with money today, um, so our, our between our bank accounts say, suppose I want to transfer money to Jonas, from my <clears throat> say, and I'm going to use the examples of UK banks because I'm UK-based, um, HSBC bank account, say to Jonas's Barclays bank account. Um What's effectively happening here is we've got two types of money that are being, one is being effectively converted to another. I've got HSBC um, bank money, which is held in my HSBC bank account. And Jonas has an account with Barclays in which he holds Barclays commercial bank money. And what's happening behind the scenes is if I transfer him £100, say, is this is being converted from. Bar- from HSBC money to Barclays money, but all this is seamless. All this happens in the background. We are unaware of this. All I know is I am slightly poorer, and Jonas is slightly richer, and hopefully the funds went to the right recipient, etc. But there, behind the scenes, there is not only a whole technical infrastructure to support this seamless conversion from one form into another, but there is also a whole legal and regulatory framework that gives both of us confidence that our money are the pounds that we hold are worth the same amount that give us both confidence that we can use them for the same things regardless of which bank account they're held in. And that give us confidence that essentially when we transact with each other, um, that the, the that things will flow, with no unexpected interruptions from one account to another and be completely usable at either end. And we take all this for granted behind the scenes. We completely take all this for granted. No one questions every day what I'm converting from one form into another. Add cash into the mix and Jonas might go to an ATM and withdraw £100 in cash from his Barclays account. Again, there's this conversion taking place behind the scenes, which we don't see from actually two completely different forms of money. One is commercial bank money and the other is the cash he withdraws, which is public money. these are all questions that we never ask day to day, but as these new forms of digital money, CBDCs and stable coins are emerging, and as we're starting to look ahead to a world in which they not only coexist with each other, but also with existing forms of money, we start to ask these questions of how can they interoperate, what are the levels of interoperability that are required, and what does it mean? What does a pound mean, actually, and what does a euro mean? And how do I know that what I'm holding is a pound like any other pound or a euro like any other euro? Um, so yes, it's, it's a bit more, probably a lot more deep and meaningful than, than the, uh, the, the, this topic of the webinar uh, might imply. But on that note, I'm gonna open this up to the panel now and start off with the questions. Um, Can we start by explaining to to the audience, what are the different forms of money that are are, are around today and how will this expand in the future um, as we see the emergence of new forms of digital money? Um, And I'm going to first ask Osman. You're on mute.
5: Thank you very much, Jana. Um, So what are the different forms of money? And I think there are at least two dimensions. One is who's issuing the money. Money is typically a liability on someone. If the Bank of England issues this, it's a claim on the Bank of England. If HSBC issues this, it's a claim on HSBC. An HSBC bank account, as as Jana said, is um, a private form of money denominated in pound sterling because in the uk we use sterling as the unit of account uh, but it could be any currency really it doesn't matter um but so the important thing is who's who's issuing the money whose claim is it is it on um and the other dimension is um the medium so we have at least two types of mediums for money we have physical tokens or so banknotes and coins and um we have uh, scriptural monies um in the money as in the form of a book entry. Um, so typically, your bank account is is the the the, the medium is 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 book entry money. Um, and um, so th- that, that's all we have. So we have a an infrastructure for for transmitting um, physical tokens, and then we have a huge, vast infrastructure uh, for transacting. Um, for transactional scriptural monies, which is the bulk, really, um, of money uh, in our economy. Just to give you a sense here, for example, for the euro system, we have about 15 trillion uh, euros of money outstanding, which is the definition of a broad monetary aggregate. Of those, only 1.5 trillion, so less than a tenth, um, is actually currency in circulation. So the physical notes we mostly associate with money, but which is only a small subset of money. I leave it here. Thank you. And Thank maybe you.
2: Di- Sorry. Go yeah, on directly
3: to build on what those men said, I think that's 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 absolutely right. And what we can also add is, if we th- look into the future and maybe also look at the world of crypto, that since 2008, to these two forms of money, we we had, right? So claims on a commercial bank and claims on a central bank via cash and bank deposits. We also have these crypto crypto assets, right? So we have Bitcoin, Ether, and the other. Uh, twenty thousand uh, assets here that are not a claim on anybody right so th- that's a really a really, really big I- uh, difference if you think about and also f- potentially in the future then we also have then cbdc um as well um here right so not yet of course in in most economies, but in a few, we already are live. And, and this, of course, completely um, yeah changes the, the monetary system because CBDCs also unite some features of cash, some um, of bank deposits, right? And it gives like the whole payment, a complete different spectrum and diversity and also different use cases. Thanks,
2: Jonas. And so we have all these different types of money or all these these different forms of money today and and they will be expanding in the future to different forms of digital money but what makes one pound the same as another or one euro the same as another how do I have confidence that the money that's in my bank account it has the same value as um, its cash equivalent Um, what kind of legal certainty do I have around that Diego?
4: Um, thanks, John. I mean, one one thing to clarify, um, which I think <clears throat> sometimes gets um, overlooked, is is this, I mean, as it was explained earlier, Usman just put it to the point. He said, like, it's all is all a claim. So we're talking about ultimately trust. Um, and that trust that people give to a particular means of payment is what will ultimately define it as money. Now, if you've got a a legal framework which de- determines what's legal tender in a particular jurisdiction, then essentially what that legal framework is saying is that debt obligations can be extinguished through the transfer of whatever that legal tender has been defined uh, as. Meaning that if if you have a debt obligation between two counterparties, um, it is up to the counterparties to agree what they will accept in in, to extinguish that debt obligation, it may be that they say, oh, you, you give me apples, I'll give you pears, and we're both happy. It's about what happens when that's no longer an option, when one of the counterparties fails, and you have to fall back on, how do you make the position good? And I think this is where the legal framework comes in and says, well, if you owed pears, but you can't deliver pears, you've caused a damage to the counterparty, and therefore, you need to make good, and because it was a, an economic detriment that you've created, the legal framework looks at whatever is legal tender and says you may be able to extinguish that debt through paying what is the legal tender, the equivalent in the damage that you've caused through in the particular jurisdiction, and so in the UK that will be pounds, in in, in the in the euro area that will be euros, and so you start determining. That actually, there is a legal tender, something that has that is worth something just because people ascribe value to it it's 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 not there's nothing we're no longer in a position where every every euro is backed by reserves or anything you know people give value to whatever the legal tender is because that's been determined to be the legal tender, and then the value is a free float on the market as we can see that's why the value of the pound. Know, fluctuates and that's why um you know uh, it works like that so so really we need to distinguish that concept of whatever has been determined as legal tender which allows people to then use to you know pay with if they don't have whatever the other recourse was in the contract
2: okay and and legal tender is a is a is a legal construct. so it you you either meet the definition of being legal tender or not right yes. so, and, and legal tender is not the same as legal, money legal. by the way okay
4: yeah Can so you, i would it, um, yeah in in many cases you know legal tender is of course money but it doesn't have, it, it's not necessarily the case that what for someone is, is amounts to money is legal tender the, the, the classic example is bitcoin in this in this context right people have you know paid for coffees in bitcoin um, you know, and coffee houses have accepted bitcoin in 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 instead, but that wasn't legal tender in that jurisdiction. Legal tender is typically whatever the jurisdiction has determined to be the the, the you know the, the currency of the jurisdiction. But that's so- literally just a concept.
2: So the set of things that might constitute legal tender in the future as we see new Forbes digital money being introduced could change. Um, for example, we might see systemically important stable coins being included in a in an expanded definition of legal tender in the future.
4: Potentially, yes. I mean, we, we've we seen El Salvador has ex- expanded the definition of legal tender to include Bitcoin. And that ha- that has the effect that you should be able. I, I'm not. A, a Salvadorian lawyer, but it should be the case that you are allowed to pay either in U.S. dollars or in Bitcoin. And the the point is that somebody who is owed money in that jurisdiction must accept either, because they're both legal tenders. So it's up to you to decide in which one you want to pay. And that Did sort of creates. One... Sorry, go ahead.
5: Now, I'd like to interject here one thing because legal tender is a very narrow concept. So, for example, what is legal tender in the euro system? Banknotes is the only legal tender. Your bank account at Deutsche Bank, denominated in euros, is not legal tender. So, legal tender is a very, very narrow definition. In the UK, for example, the Bank of England notes are legal tender only in England and Wales, not in Scotland and Northern Ireland, for example. The only legal tender we have in the UK throughout are coins. Which are issued by the mint, the Royal Mint, not even by the Bank of England. So, legal tender is—I think it's an overused term to some extent um, because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't; money doesn't have to be legal tender to be used um, prominently. For example, many countries use foreign currencies that are not legal tender in their countries and yet you know serve um, to to discharge any any form of debt. So, I think even if Future, um, you know, Bitcoin, uh, stablecoins, etc., will extremely unlikely that will ever become legal tender. But it doesn't matter; it it wouldn't matter. They could still become very prominent payment instruments.
2: Okay, thank you. And so. If we look into a future where there's going to be different forms of money, both the current, the types of money that we have today in commercial bank money and cash um, and central bank reserves, as well as commercial bank, uh, as well as um, digital money in the form of CBDC and different types of stable coins, some of which may ultimately constitute legal tender, some of which won't, but all of which will be used for payments to some extent or another. How in the future do we preserve some idea of the singleness of a euro or a pound that here is a thing that is a pound and has the same value as another pound or here is the thing that has a euro, that is a euro and has the same value as another euro? Um, Martin, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, so I think um, once it starts to deviate, from everything else that's worth a pound, it becomes something else, um, which we've kind of seen with some of the stable coins in the crypto world depegging themselves. Um, they they cease to become the same thing effectively at that point. So I think in terms of keeping them keeping them together, I think the legal and regulatory framework will be important. Um, uh, the who issues them um, will be important, um, and they for me the important thing with in, in the payments world is kind of the what reach do you have with a particular um instrument and then what payment instruments can you do with that so there's a lot of different networks they have a lot of different functionality in across the euro and uk zones um if you have a stable coin does it work on those is it interoperable with those uh, or can it be only used in its own little area if it has its if it has limited functionality it's likely to change its value relative to the mainstream um, denomination, currency. I'm not sure what words we Forms use. Forms of currency, exactly. And but that could go the other way, right? So I mean, the, the the whole point of having a programmable currency is that you can potentially create a rail which has better automation, takes out um, a lot of the manual process that's, that there is today. So it could be that in that format, it is more valuable. Um, so I think how the um, how that remains consistent. Is going to be quite interesting how that plays out for me a lot of it comes down to um, what's the user experience of this so today we have bank accounts um, and we use cards with those bank accounts um, quite often um, there's a whole other system that's hold the card balance there's a, a shadow balance that lives somewhere on a card system those things talk to each other it's entirely like you were saying before with it the, with the, the bank account transfers entirely transparent you don't see it so that's quite a big question for me in terms of the user experience. If it is a stable coin, would you see it as something different at all? Or would you just see it as a different type of payment method or payment instrument? Um, so, you know, we have direct debit today. That's fine, works out of any bank account, works on the back system. Um, if that bank account was connected to a stable coin system with more complicated uh, and automated functionality than things like direct debit and things like backs, um, would you notice? Um, Because today, if you hold uh, crypto accounts with lots of places, you can use a debit card. And what will happen is the exchange will just do a spot transfer, charge you loads of money, but it works seamlessly. Um, You can see the same sort of scenario for um, stable coins and CBDCs where you have um, improved payment instruments, but actually it looks pretty much seamless again because if it's not seamless it's going to be really hard to build any adoption i think that's if there's anything that we've learned from the last few ages in payments and if it's not really seamless and ubiquitous then um people are unlikely to use it and it won't gain traction
2: so there's something in there about this um, user perception and the, the creating user trust and perception that these things all do constitute a pound or they do constitute a euro, even though actually the the functionality associated with them might differ and some might be more appealing than others for certain use cases. and that's not dissimilar to what we see at the moment is it because actually different banks or different accounts can offer different interest rates and so that does create some distinction between even though what you're holding in each of those is a pound there's a different there, there is a different level of value associated with it right but but is the
4: is the point there not and i think i agree with what martin is saying i think essentially it's how easy it is to convert it into Something else, right? So if if you want to create uh, if you want to create a twenty pound note out out of your HSBC balance, it is very easy to do that today. You just go to an ATM and you get your twenty pounds. And if you want to convert those twenty pounds into a, an HSBC balance, you just put them into an HSBC machine or into an, any other bank machine, and, and they convert in, back into balance, and then you can transfer them and because it's so easy and it's always the same so you can always convert a 20 pound note for 20 pound balance the value stays put now if it becomes incredibly difficult to do that and so i think this is where the interoperability or fungibility or convertibility depending on what you're looking for matters is um you know how quickly you can then convert the cbdc into the legacy cash and back if it's incredibly difficult to do that if you need special licenses and go through a process chances are people are gonna start valuing it differently and you're gonna create a different valuation for the cbdc versus the the traditional cash so
3: but, but maybe let's, let's- Yeah, let's now go into the the terms, right? Because Diego, you mentioned it, and I think, Jenna, you started with seamless, which I think is is really good because seamless is for me like the top category. And below seamless, we have, for example, fungibility, interoperability, convertibility, um, etc. So what I think is important is is the aspect, as you mentioned, Diego, is fungibility. And for me, fungibility is basically the ability of an asset to be interchanged with another asset of the same type. So that assets are indistinguishable, indistinguishable, hard word. Um, For example, like oil. So you have one gallon of oil, which can be exchanged with another one. And it's the same, right? Or you buy 15 uh, plates at Amazon um, and you can interchange them. They are the same. um, And the same for money, right? So you can do this with cash, as we discussed Um, And I think this is really important when it comes to to, to CBDCs and stablecoins, because here I think I'm happy to hear your opinion, but when it comes to fungibility, we don't have any issues because um, for fungibility, it, it matters that you can interchange them with other firms of the euro, for example, in the euro area. And We have today, a CBDC would be a claim on the central bank. So you wouldn't have any fungibility issues within the CBDC because it's the same issuer, right? Um, And you would always have um, a one-to-one conversion possibility into bank money, right? Because CBDCs, that's what the central banks say, it will be converted at par. So you have fungibility to bank deposits. So I think for CBDC, this topic of fungibility um, is not that much of an issue, mainly for like different kinds of stable coins, maybe.
4: Well, well, I think it it will depend. So, in a markets con- in, in a markets transaction, it it will it would need to be necessary for you to be able to extinguish your debt through either CBDCs or bank balance or coins. You know, if that's possible, if it doesn't matter whether you own, you know, CBDC, what, you know, what, if all of them are the same, then they're truly fungible. Yeah. Um I agree with you, but, but I, I mean, I don't know whether that's actually just done at the level of the C of the central bank. I think that requires tinkering with, you know, maybe market contract or potentially with, you know, the law.
2: So, that- so I think this leads, this leads on quite nicely to, to the next concept. So we've talked about fungibility, which is about two things having the sameness about them But they could potentially take different forms, however. And so in order to utilize that sameness, you need to be able to convert them from one form into another, which brings us to convertibility as the the second of our major concepts in the the ecosystem of money. Who would like to talk about convertibility?
5: But Jana, allow me to, to interject here just on fungibility versus convertibility. I know this. You know these concepts seem seem to be synonymous, but they are not. Fungibility is if you have a ten pound note, and you exchange it for f- two five pound notes, that is fungibility. No question asked. It's the same claim, you know, on the Bank of England. You see, but when you go from your bank account to um to uh, uh to Bank of England notes, these two are not fungible. Right? They are convertible. So now, when it comes to CBDC and and maybe maybe if we if we even you know, if you take a step back the innovation you know we, we talked about the innovation of money you know, the the emergence of cbdc the the innovation is the adoption of a new medium right? and and we haven't really been talking about it but i think the the important thing is cbdc is the adoption of tokens uh, with properties akin to um, a digital bearer instrument so to complement the existing mediums we have physical tokens um, you know um scriptural monies and now tokens um the idea is that for the bank of england for example these should be all fungible meaning a cbdc is exactly the same pound as a banknote and uh, exchanging them should be on the basis of no question asked okay um so that is where the key innovation is when it comes to convertibility i think we can have contability amongst in a normal array of different types of monies and and maybe just to serve as as a reminder we we have mentioned stable coins the innovation with stable coin is is not so much the the concept of the stable coin but the fact that it is being issued by non-banks right because the notion of money we have is it is basically a liability of the banking system with stable coins you know we now have um, something that may not be liability of the banking um, system um maybe much closer to a liability on an investment vehicle like a money market fund for example. So we also already have something similar like, like that um, what is interesting with you know the, the current companies we have, like Tether or, so, or USDC, is they're not even financial institutions to some extent, you see. So I think this is where the innovation is. It's on the issuer side, you know? but not so much on the concept. But I think convertibility should allow us to, to have the seamless exchange of different claims. It doesn't mean these claims are fungible, but they are convertible. And that is basically key to allow us to preserve the integrity of the money market. So anything that would make it difficult as diego already suggested means a fragmentation of the market and that would undermine the singleness of the currency and that is clearly what we need need to avoid mm.
3: and maybe to to add few uh, two sentences to what usman said i think it's it's really important that around stable coins is also it shouldn't be taken as given that all the stable coins can be um are, are fungible with each other because what we today see for digital forms of bank money as also diego elaborated they are so you can as you said jenna uh, you can send me uh, money via um, your barclays money via H- hsbc or the other way around i don't remember because in the in the background central bank reserves are settled right so we have another currency which settles the claims but if we have stable coins so for example Deutsche bank and commerce bank issue their own stable coins or Tokenized commercial bank money, let's say, and this fungibility is not necessarily given because you own a claim on this commercial bank, and there is no no central bank money moved in the background. It can be, but it doesn't need to buy design. So what I want to say by that is, for stablecoin design, it's really crucial to think about this fungibility aspect, um, because it's not um, it's not given that yet, yet for claims that are uh, stablecoins that are issued by banks. So that doesn't hold, as Usman said, for claims you or stablecoins issued by non-banks. But if banks issue the stablecoins, then this fungibility topic becomes again even more important um, from my perspective.
2: So, so I'd like to unpack this distinction between convertibility and, and fungibility a little bit more. Um, from from, from the, uh, the point of view of convertibility, we could end up seeing a, you know, a vast array of different types of things, uh, different types of money. Uh, we could see e-money, e-money tokens, um, different forms of stable coins, for example. Potentially even some algorithmically backed stable coins if they're allowed in the future. Um, all being convertible through various mechanisms, and we'll get onto that in a bit as well. Um, with CBDCs, with cash, with um commercial bank money etc but fungibility is a narrower concept are there a set of criteria um, either you know legal criteria or kind of logical criteria that make something fungible open question to the panel um and and this is not hard and fast i, I realize that some of these things are, are being discussed here maybe for the first time so um hopefully no one will hold us to this definition
0: uh so i think what i took from that is if it's the same issuer um and it represents the same claim then it's fungible if it's a different issuer then it's going to be converted
5: and yeah, I think I, i'm very happy no i think that's a good definition indeed now the example being the, the pounds right you can exchange them into different denominations of the same pound it's the same issuer so but um you cannot do it it's not fungible when the issue is different that, that that's the key yeah.
2: so my HSBC money and Jonas's barclays money they are not fungible because they have different issuers but they are convertible correct yes. okay uh Jonas and Diego would you like to add to that?
4: I mean, I, yeah, from a from a legal perspective, it sort of seems weird to talk about HSBC money, right? Because effectively, you've got a claim on HSBC, and so you know, I think if you if you if you think of money as a liability of the bank, then I suppose yes, you're right. Um, what is then interesting to me is you know people refer to. Um, a claim on the on the central bank, and and that to me is a really interesting question because what's what's your claim for? Is then the next question, um, and uh, I don't think that because we because the pound is no longer backed by anything, you actually have a claim on anything. So if you went to the Bank of England today and said, "Here's my twenty pounds, I have a claim of twenty pounds," um, yes, but on what? I mean. Yeah, you know, I see the they're value that actually they're not going to give you twenty pounds gold or anything. You, yeah. you, no, no,
0: I, I, I see that as it's it's a claim that was extinguished by the legal tender law. E-
4: e- exactly, and and effectively, what you have is a claim on twenty pounds, which have the value that people in the markets because you've unpegged it, because you've created fiat. You know, that's what it is. You, you've got, you know, it's a little bit like Bitcoin in that sense
5: yeah i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't say i wouldn't say the pound is equal to you know similar to bitcoin Um, but uh but but it's true the principle is the same right it is the. i mean you mentioned it trust right the key is the pound is value because there's some expectation that you can buy something worth 20 pounds today tomorrow now with rising inflation this, tri- this trust eventually, you know, will be undermined and the pound will depreciate against other currencies that are perceived to hold their value better. But it is true. it It's not a fiction, right? But the fact is, to, it, even if it says, you know, pay pay the bearer 10 pounds, if you go to the Bank of England and you tender 10 pounds, they give you back 10 pounds, basically. Yeah. Um,
2: and so by that definition as well of, of fungibility being... Um, something that comes from the same issuer but it could potentially take different forms so in the future we could see cash and um uh, cbdc and they have would have the same issuer of being a central bank would they then be fungible by that definition
0: I, I i for me that depends how much how easy it is to convert them from one form to another um and the thing that makes me think about that is, is the old paper notes. So if you have a £10 note that's a paper note, you can't spend it or take it to a commercial bank. It's still worth £10, but you have to take it to the Bank of England to get it converted. Does that have the same value as a £10 note you can spend? Probably not. You, probably if somebody was going to give you £8 for it, you'd give them to it. So it's it's lost its value, even though they're from the same issuer um, and they, they have the same amount. The amount of friction that's involved... Um, can lead people to value them differently. And I'm I'm not sure if that means they're not fungible anymore, but certainly they're not worth the same. So I guess they're not. Um, so I think with CBDC and cash and central bank reserves, it's going to be a kind of a similar sort of thing. The more seamless it is and the more trusted it is, the more fungible it is. If it becomes difficult, non-seamless, you, know, you can only use it in certain venues or um, with certain licenses, which I think we touched on before, then that will affect the value of that particular form.
3: And I don't I don't want to open the, the, the definition question again, but I think it also depends how broadly you do, you define the term, because I mean, you, you've seen in the beginning of the panel, I was also saying it, that doesn't really matter of the issuer. So if you say fungibility is the ability for an asset to be interchanged with an asset of the same type, it's the question, what is the same type, right? So Usman has mm-hmm. mainly argued that this like it has to be the same issue, otherwise it cannot be the same type. But if you say and this was actually a broader definition I applied and um, same time also meet like the euro into the euro. You know, so it's it's not about the issue, then it would also be fungible. So even in this kind of, I think, clear definition, and I think um, it's very good to that we distinguish between convertibility and fungibility now um, as well. It's it's really important to also think about what like, you know, same type, et cetera, means and and to be very precise. And I think this is also why it's important to have like events like that to uh, to to exchange this and disseminate the thoughts here.
2: Doesn't I mean? think it's also mm-hmm. important to mention as well, um, sorry, Isman, I'll come back to you, is that, you know, Martin and, and Diego and Isman have kind of settled on one definition of fungibility and, and Jonas is thinking about it something else. It could be that, uh, you know, there is no settled definition right now. It could be that this is just a matter of terminology. And we're talking about different concepts that need to be described in different ways or something like that. Um, this is all part of this conversation that's been had at the moment that hasn't necessarily been had to this level of detail before because we've never really had to think about it um, to this extent. Before we get on to interoperability and how it enables convertibility, um, I'll come back to you, Usman, uh, because you had something to say.
5: I just wanted to add, for example, in in the CBDC projects I've worked on, for example, the e-krona, which is a retail CBDC um, project. So here the idea was, how do banks that are intermediaries of CBDC, very similar to cash, how do they acquire CBDC? And the idea was they do so, like with cash, against reserves. So a bank, the commercial bank would say in the morning, look, I need need 50 million uh, krona in CBDC, please debit my reserves. And the central bank will, no question asked, debit the reserves and then issue the CBDC to the commercial bank. That is how it works with cash. And upon return of the CBDC, um, you know the c- uh, central bank will will um, will ensure that these are truly the tokens it had issued. And if so, if this is confirmed, will credit the reserves. Um, of the of the commercial bank, so um, the, the, so the, fun, the, fun, the the fungibility is to precisely give certainty to the commercial banks that these transactions are possible, both on the issuance and, and and the redemption side. And and I think if we think of introducing CBDC, it's very important we keep precisely that mechanism in in, in mind, which to some extent I think you know at Accenture we have pioneered, namely that the issuance of CBDC is simply um, a, a substitution um, of um, of of central bank liability. Um, and it doesn't lead to an expansion of the central bank's balance sheet. I, I think it's that's quite the
2: form the key. in which that liability is exactly. kind of manifested.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: So let's talk about interoperability and what does interoperability mean to each of you and how can it enable, um, how can it provide the mechanism behind um, these concepts of fungibility and convertibility? Let's start with Martin
0: uh interoperability yes that's good that's good. That's one of the things that we do um in in the in the realm of money for me interoperability is about mostly about the reach um, and the acceptance of a, a given store of value so if you've got a bank account um, you are interoperable with as many systems as your bank is interoperable with um, so, in the early days, you might have had a bank that had faster payments or you might have had a bank that didn't have faster payments because they were not on that, um, likewise with the SEPA system. So, if you're with a big bank, probably you're interoperable with a large range of systems from your bank account. Um, and likewise, um, if you're not just sending money, if you actually want to buy things, then you know what kind of merchant acceptance have you got? So, if you've got cash, that used to be ubiquitous. Um, cash is less ubiquitous now there's a number of merchants uh, particularly around London that won't take cash they will only take card um, which was starting before COVID and is now increasing because the cost of them paying in cash is high so you actually then need to be interoperable with some kind of acceptance system whether that is cards or some kind of QR thing or whatever happens to be in, in your your area so interoperability for me is kind of it it from a consumer point of view, what can you do with your money? You know, with a given issuer or a given kind of uh, institution, how, what, how, how far can you spend it? What can you do with it? Interoperability between payment systems is a little bit more complicated in that it is quite rare. Um, it's it's generally interoperability is between you have a bank that's connected to all of these things and there's a load of banks that connects to all of these things. There's very few payment systems that connect to each other, not through a bank, um, largely because each of those systems has a community that are going to settle um, their uh, central bank liabilities or set of bilateral liabilities. They've got a set of scheme rules. Um, and those are pretty specific to that payment scheme, usually. Um, So pushing money from one payment scheme to another scheme where you may have no way of settling that money between the institutions is quite difficult. Um, There's been quite a lot of work on it. um, And there are some schemes that are doing that, um, particularly um, in in Asia Pacific, I believe. Um, So Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, they have some projects around there. um, And some of those are retail um, which is which is great, but they're really, really new. It's quite, it's quite a new thing to be able to do. Um, and then the other side of it is going to be on linking central banks to do foreign exchange to create the sort of settlement that I was just talking about that doesn't exist. Once that does exist, then that can start to trickle down and become more useful. And I think um, some of the projects you mentioned have explored some of that.
2: Okay. And Jonas, from your experience in the Digital Euro Association, what does interoperability mean to you and what is interoperability? um, How do you see interoperability um, making the the future Digital Euro work behind the scenes?
3: Yeah, so for me, I actually like the definition by the BIS, which says that inter- um, interoperability is basically the technical compatibility that enables a system to be used in conjunction with other systems. Um, so I actually like this is another word now, um, com- compatibility here. But for me, interoperability is mainly about like te- technology, basically, um, while fungibility was about you know um, like convertibility and um, like about risk, you know, of the underlying assets. So for me, it's mainly about technology. It mainly came up in the DLT space due to this delivery versus payment mechanisms, for example, right? That you can, uh, can, for example, um, a smart contract, you can trigger a smart contract and the payment is triggered in another blockchain, for example, right? Um, and to be honest, I think this can um, is very important, for example, when it comes to um, DLT applications for CBDCs. But I think it depends on the use case, what the central bank wants to achieve. So if this is about... Um, and Accenture has done really great work here about using a DLT for a CBDC and about delivery versus payment, etc. It's like a must. Um, but when it's, for example, comes to just using issuing a digital form of cash, like offline payments, for example, then maybe the integration to other blockchain system is not that necessary.
2: We actually had a question from the audience um, a few minutes ago about, um, you mentioned fungibility can happen with the same issue and convertibility is between different issuers. Um, can blockchain help and which can facilitate both? Uh, which I think you were starting to, to touch on, on on this. What are your views on that, Jonas, and the role of blockchain and interoperability?
3: Yeah, well, I think I, I think we should just open this uh, quickly because we are kind of running out of time. But yes, um, and I
2: still have a couple more questions for Isman and Diego on interoperability as well.
3: Yeah, so, so I think maybe just one, one answer. I think blockchain is a great tool to provide a standardized platform where you have like distributed rules, distributed consensus. So it's easier for parties to agree on this platform. So it can be a tool of harmonization and standardization for different kinds of payments. But I think we need another panel on uh, diving, diving into this topic.
2: Um, yes, absolutely. So Usman, you you have worked on a number of CBDC projects. And from a practical perspective, How have you seen the challenges of interoperability with existing payment systems as well as with existing central bank money tackled in practice?
5: Yes, thank you. Very, very interesting question. Indeed, interoperability... It seems to be a bit of a headache, um, um, you know, for um, the adoption of, 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 of a CBDC. And and I think to some extent, you know, this is a false debate. Um, first of all, in today's system, there's no interoperability. Right? Banks are completely isolated, siloed institutions, and the only way they can communicate is via, you know, secure messaging. So there's no interoperability today. However, indeed, as Jonas already suggested, For the future, and this is how we use the term mostly, interoperability is can two blockchains communicate with one another? Now, technically, I think we've mostly solved for that. Yeah. In particular, through the um, temporal synchronization of blockchains that then allow, you know, um, information to cross. Um, in a in a sort of in a in a in in such a way that you can do payments versus payments or delivery versus payments transactions across blockchain. So I think it mostly you know has been solved. But another dimension which also came up is that of integration. So in our work we try to say interoperability is between blockchains and integration is a blockchain application with existing systems, so account-based systems typically. So in order to be successful, I think, for future token-based financial market infrastructure, it needs to be fully seamlessly integrated into, of course, the existing uh, sort of infrastructures. The idea is not to substitute them, but mostly the CBDC projects we're working on is to expand functionality and it's to extend, really, the financial systems, you know, with the advantages um, that uh, that blockchain, you know, enabled applications um, provide for. So, So I would distinguish interoperabilities between blockchains. Key is as important, maybe if, if not even more important, is the integration of blockchain with existing systems. And okay. for those also we have, I think we found the, the solutions as well. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and before we get on to a few of the audience Q&A, I just wanted to go to Diego to help bring this all together, really. These concepts of fungibility and um, convertibility and interoperability, whether or not we call them that today, um, do exist to some extent today, although maybe not to the extent that we're, we're foreseeing them in the future, um, especially when it comes to interoperability. How does the legal and regulatory framework support these behind the scenes and what's going to need to happen um, in order to to broaden that to the future into new forms of digital money? And if we can have your three minute answer to that, that would be ideal. Sure.
4: Um, I mean, I think oh, interoperability is not a, it's not a legal thing. I don't think that that, you know, necessarily exists in the law um it's it's as as people have been saying it's a it's a factual question it's a question as to whether or not you know systems work together um convertibility and fungibility do exist in the law and i think essentially um p- purely fungibility is is the ability of to extinguish a debt a debt claim with a particular thing um using exactly the same one so if you can extinguish a debt claim by paying something else that then those things are fungible um if you need to work out what the value would be of another payment to extinguish a debt then they're convertible potentially you know and it's not necessarily clear whether whether they are in fact extinguishing the debt in that in that in that way it's just that if you have to work out oh how much money would i ascribe to this particular different thing that i'm being offered then you're converting and you're starting to to look at you know a different thing.
2: Okay. Um, I'm going to go to the some of the audience questions now, um, which are which are quite um, interesting and relevant. And we've touched on some of them previously. Um, so we've got a question on um, what creates fungibility Is it market perception or is it law? And um, this was addressed to to Isman. um, So I'll go to you first, but then if anyone else would like to pitch in on that afterwards, you're very welcome to.
5: No, no, uh, thank you very much for the question. Look, I think I think fungibility is mostly is about practice. What is what is market practice? Um, And um, there may be a legal underpinning. as Diego alluded to but i think the important thing is is market practice what is generally accepted and and i think you know while we try to codify you know many of our actions of course but i think it's also important that when it comes to money in particular you know concepts tend to be fairly loose for example you know it's perfectly legal you know in the uk in any country mostly you can pay in any currency you like Right. Um, if the taxi driver in, in London accepts Polish sloty, right, it's perfectly legal to pay him or her in Polish slotty. Um So, uh, therefore, you know, we, we shouldn't be. I think we shouldn't be um, following or trying to follow too tightly um, what are legal concepts. I think market practice really should be our guide here.
2: Would anyone else like to to weigh in on that?
3: I think not not a lot to add. I think Usman, um explained this very well. And besides market perception, I think, and, and practice, it's also, again, about risk, I would say, right? So again, remember the, the current commercial bank money, it's also a fungible within the different banks because in the end it's settled in central bank money. So you have this kind of uh, central bank um, issued forms of money in the background that is transacted. And I think that's also important to mention in this context.
4: I mean, one one... Just comment, just to come back to what Usman said, I think that's absolutely right that, you know, you need to be practical about it. Um, as a lawyer, I, I always think, you know, you, you need to you need to be ready for when stuff gets, you know, not the way you intend it. If it if it turns sour, if somebody fails, and what do you do with the claim then? That's I think for me the fundamental question. And that, you know, sadly boils down to what the legal framework said. And this is why I think whilst you can be very pragmatic in the way you're looking at certain concepts in order to make it work, you need to always keep in mind that when things fail, you will be relying on legal definitions and, you know, then it won't be acceptable to pay in Slotty. It will be acceptable to pay in whatever the legal framework says you have to pay in. Um, and, you know, you won't be able to, you know, pay in anything else. And so that, that that's sort of where it becomes tricky, and that's why I think it's important to just you know always mm. make sure that you're you, that you're keeping that legal analysis in your in your in your mind
5: yeah. one quick one quick reaction here what what is interesting when it comes to money in particular currencies is that we have very, very little on the legal side because you know even for currencies, what is a currency? I, you know, I'm not. I'm not aware of any law. Central bank laws typically do not, you know, define it. Actually, so, so because money is so old, right? And a lot of our, particularly in the UK, right in the, U, in, the in the Eurozone, because the, the the Maastricht Treaty gave us a new definition, but we have a fairly modern sort of you know framework. But in, in in the US or in the in the UK, in particular, you know, try to find a definition for currency. I mean, it's you know very very difficult. A lot of these definitions come from the gold standard, and are absolutely meaningless you know meaningless today. So again, it's a dynamic environment in which I fully agree we need to adjust, um, but it's also a fairly loose framework in many in many respects. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a good thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's really interesting that actually in a a framework where a new currency has been introduced, such as the euro, there's probably a lot to learn and to apply to the the future introduction of new forms of digital money and CBDC in particular, because that's an exercise that's been undertaken already. which probably gives um, the the eurozone a a slight advantage in that respect, because in a sense, they've done it before. Um, I think there's a great final question to to end on and to get everyone's views on. And I'm going to paraphrase slightly on this one. So um, the consumer doesn't care whether something is Deutsche or HSBC deposits, they're simply deposits. Would future retail CBDC function similar to commercial deposits? Um, And I think what this question is really getting at uh, uh, is, is kind of ultimately the people who are using this don't care what kind of money they're using. They don't want to care. They don't want to know about it. How do we actually transition to a world in which that kind of seamless experience, going back to that word that Jonas used at the top of all this, in order for it to be really effective and to add value to end users, it's got to be seamless. How do we make that transition to this seamless world in which new forms of digital money coexist with existing forms and with each other. And the experience for the consumer is one in which there is trust. um, And there is an ability to transact without worrying about what happens behind the scenes or what might go wrong. And, um, it, it, I guess we could use this for your closing remarks as well. So um, I'll start with Jonas. How how do you see this, this us achieving this world?
3: Yeah, well, I think. I think what we really want, and I think the, the question is really right, is like user experience, right? So we want it to be easily convertible, like maybe just scanning your QR code, and, and that's kind of it, right? So people don't 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 care about how complex it is in, in the back. Um and I think for CBDC, as I alluded on earlier, I think it's not that much of a big problem. And so the first part of the question, I would say no, it's not comparable to commercial bank. Um, money in this kind of sense, because CBDC directly is central bank money, right? So um, commercial banks just handle claims on the central bank, like on behalf of the central bank. So that's a that's, that's a difference here. Um, but of course, when it comes to, and I'm, uh, I mentioned this previously, when it comes to stablecoin, this topic is, is of course, um, more relevant, but in the end, and this is, I think, also important for central banks, um, it's it's about it's about the use, right? It's about how easy it is to use, and and this also is a crucial factor. For example, for CBDCs to succeed, um, um, uh, that it's just yeah usable. And some previous CBDCs uh, haven't been, um, but this is, as I said, one of the key challenges, and I think also one important part of of the puzzle here.
2: Thank you. And Martin, how how in your view, how do we attain this glorious vision of the future? Um, when it comes to the ecosystem of money that's going to exist out there,
0: uh, so there's a couple of things. Regulation, I'm afraid, is going to be one of those things, right? So when we talk about trust and risk, and we talk about a HSBC deposit and a Barclays deposit, um, and I think the questioner made the point that consumer doesn't care. Well, consumer doesn't care because they're all regulated the same way. They have the FSCS compensation scheme around them, and there's a whole lot of um, measures in place to make sure they can be trusted um and you know I've, we showed in 2008 we need the measures to make sure they can be trusted that's not to leave them to it um so that i think for the stable coin um market that's going to be the same right so you need to have the same level of trust in an issue of a stable coin as you do in the folks that hold your bank account if you're going to trust it the same way you would be foolish to do otherwise um, what I think will be interesting is where you have CBDC and stablecoin coexisting, um, which I think is quite likely because, as mentioned before, the amount of CBDC issued is dependent on the amount of uh, collateral that the commercial banks want to tie up at the Bank of England in the same way as they do with um, with cash. Because the commercial bank money is not banked by that. And it's only the net differences that have to be settled at the Bank of England. So a lot more of it can be in circulation. A lot more of it can be used to power the economy. So I think there's a role for both. Um, and that um, trust will need to be maintained seamlessly across CBDC, stablecoin, which is commercial money, but a new form and existing commercial money that people don't even think about. Um, so regulatory framework will be part of it. And then the seamlessness of user experience, which I think we are just as an industry starting to touch on what those use cases would be, what that would look like. There's more theory than there is practice in in terms of what that would look like on the retail side in particular. Um, and I think that's where there's going to be tons and tons of um, innovation and in, particularly in corporate, but also in some consumer as well. So you've got closing remarks as well there.
2: Thank you. And um, yes, on to Diego, um, how how are we going to, to achieve this through a regulatory and legal framework?
4: I mean, I think it's a bit unfair to expect this to happen overnight. I mean, if you look at, you know, how the Internet has has developed, how, you know, people are now ordering food and pizzas and, you know, everything via their apps. That didn't happen overnight. You know, I remember... Twenty years ago somebody came out with a with, with a restaurant came up with the idea of ordering their pizzas online and people thought it was, you know, a bit bonkers. Why would you do that? And now it's the norm. So I think there's an element of that. I think it will it will just grow. People will start using it more as they see the benefits of it, as it as it inter interlinks with other things that they're doing in their life. It becomes their their, you know, day to day, it starts developing. And but I think um Regulation is key. And I think being able to give the consumer the protection that they need so that they don't have to think about it, that's the, that's the important bit. And at the moment, we don't have that.
2: Right. I think you made some great points there um, <clears throat> around the fact that we didn't actually foresee ourselves paying for things in the ways we do today or transacting in the ways we do today and Osman, I've, I've heard you in the past on, on other events speaking about how we mustn't lose sight that these are new forms of money that we're talking about and, and 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 they will lead to us doing new things with them in the future doing things that we can't envisage right now um and again, there's this huge utility to be gained, there's this huge potential benefit, and there's this kind of unexplored world and unintended consequences and things like that. But how how do we make that a good consumer experience?
5: Mm. No, look, I mean, fantastic question. I mean, I, I, the, the fact that consumers don't care, I think, is fantastic thing, of course. And it shows that, you know, they trust, in in essence, our financial system. Now, this may be true for the UK, but it may not be true for many, many other countries. So I think we should also not project from what is the norm, let's say, in the UK or in advanced economies to, to the rest of the world. So I think that is one, one important um, aspect. When it comes to the to the future really for me it's this uh, you know multiple dimensions one is the, the the new medium we are adding so we are expanding you know we, we are diversifying the mediums um, of, of money i think we also we will see uh, you know a broad range of, of issuers adding to what is already a continuum uh, of different monies and then i think most importantly we will change the geography of money right money today is extremely local you know it's issued to local entities it can only be used effectively within the you know the the jurisdictional boundaries um, but in the future maybe a stable coin can serve you know in many different uh, jurisdictions and therefore becomes much more mobile um, you no know, we haven't seen um, we have seen a lot of globalization uh, but, but but we haven't seen the globalization of money yet but now an, an, an important sort of condition i think is indeed regulation and regulation not to regulate but in, in particular to establish a level playing field amongst these different actors and not give undue advantage or disadvantage um, to the incumbents um, and and the new entrants, I think that that is going to be key. I think we do not take advantage of what we can already easily um, regulate, and, and and I think we are making it too difficult. Looking at you know creating new regulation when in fact. It, I think it'll be in many instances more effective to map these new instruments into existing regulation. We can certainly do that at the activity level and the entity level. Um, But I hope that we will create um, a regulatory framework that is sufficiently transparent um, to allow the financial innovation um, to to, to materialize. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you very much, Ismond. And um, I'm aware we've got slightly over time, um, yet we've hardly begun to do this topic justice. I think that over the coming months, you'll probably see from both of our organisations and possibly in collaboration with each other, more exploration of these really important topics, which are starting to be discussed more widely. Um, thank you very much to our panellists once again for joining us today. Um, and thank you for the to the audience as well, and for some of the fascinating questions that you've posed. Um, and we hope to See you at another
3: event in the future thank you very much thanks everyone. thank you
2: before you go make sure to reach out to the digital euro Association via Twitter our handle is at digi euro or our LinkedIn or our website especially if you're interested in staying up to date with news and discussions around Cbdc's and stable coins worldwide not just in the eurozone and becoming part of the DIA community, since every new DIA community member adds to our existing discussions and our internal pool of knowledge in the quest to shaping the future of digital money. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to welcome you next time as well.